Over the last um, number of weeks, we've been going on a journey through the book of Ephesians. Paul has been leading us on this journey through understanding what it's like to grow in Christ. A number of times throughout his book, he actually uses that phrase, and not just in Ephesians, but in a number of his writings, Paul uses this idea of being in Christ Jesus. And so we, we get a chance to explore a little bit of what this growing in Christ is really like, this life in Christ. If you think back to when we were just getting started looking at the book of, of Ephesians, you remember that Pastor Dave discussed uh, that this was probably a letter that was circulated throughout the area to various churches, not because of one specific problem, but, but that Paul was hoping to encourage these churches as they face the same situations. He was reminding them of the very thing that unites them, a life in Christ Jesus, that for those who were in Christ Jesus, for those who had placed their faith in Jesus— they had entrusted themselves to the one who had power over the darkness and evil that's throughout this world. Paul reminded his listeners that at one time, they were dead in their trespasses and sin. He reminded them that at one time, after the, they, they had followed after the ways of this world. They had placed their trust in what this world tells them. And that while they were doing that, while they were following after the ways of this world, God sent his son. Some of my most favorite words in the Bible are found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, but God. But God. Paul told his listeners that at one time they were dead, and they were. As, as Dr. Kellogg pointed out to us last week, they were dead men walking. They were dead. But God. Their death does not have the last say. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. The beauty of the, the passage which Dr. Kellogg unpacked with us last week was that while we're still living our lives apart from him, God made us alive to this new life. God gave us a great gift. In our passage this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes together exploring this gift. We're going to come to look at this gift a little closer. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 in your Bibles. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Accept it. You can't earn your salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but I love getting gifts. I love the anticipation of the gift. I love opening the gifts, and I love exploring the joy of the gift that I've just received. I, I remember one year, my brother and sister and I received this one gift that we had been waiting for for quite a while. We received the original Nintendo video game system. I was so excited to get it. I can remember exactly where I was. I was in a chalet up in Spofford, New Hampshire. I, I was in the, a big room with giant windows. I remember the shape of the box. I remember how excited I was to get it home and take it out of the box. When we're given a meaningful gift, it's embedded on our memories and it changes how we live our lives. You better believe that after I opened that box, I lived a little bit differently towards my parents. I, I made sure to let them know how grateful I was for that present. In our passage this morning, Paul explains to his listeners that our salvation 
is a gift. The very thing that lifts us up out of the muck and mire of life and sets us our feet on a rock is a gift. The very thing that wipes away the stains of our past is a gift. The very thing that wipes away the insecurities of our present, it's a gift. And as we all know, gifts can only be received, never earned. The second you try to pay for a gift that someone offers you, you change its identity. It's no longer a gift. When we try to offer money or an object in exchange for a gift, it becomes something we attempt to, to, to earn, to, to purchase with our own possessions. Our salvation is not like that. It's a gift we don't deserve. We can't earn it, and we can only receive it in faith. And so in our passage, Paul is saying, accept it. You can't earn your salvation. Well, so why don't we deserve it then, might we say? Why don't we deserve the forgiveness and acceptance of God? You see, we live in a world that's unfamiliar with this word of grace. What I've come to learn that grace of, the grace of God means is it's the unmerited favor of God. It means that God accepts me, but not because of anything I am or have done or will ever do. But we have a problem. Forgive me for saying this, but I believe that too often we hold too high a view of ourselves. We talk about living in a sinful world, but we forget how personal that sin really is. We affirm that we're living in a sinful world where wars and famine exist. We see one people group attack and kill people from another people group, and we affirm that that's evidence of a sinful world. We acknowledge we live in a sinful world, and yet I'm not sure we recognize our role in that sinful world. If a sinful world is a setting, then we're the sinful characters in that setting. This past week, my son Alex, he's been going to kindergarten up the road at Osborne Hill. And this past week, they've been learning about stories and, and, and how stories are constructed. He's been learning that every story has a setting, characters, a problem, and a solution. Every story has a beginning, middle, and an end. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, as I'm going through his homework and helping him, I'm like, oh, this is a pretty good reminder for me. This is, this is good, not just to learn about stories, but about my own life. The setting for our story is a sinful world, and the solution to that sinful world is Jesus Christ. But we struggle to understand that we're part of the problem. We struggle to understand that the very same problem going on out there in the world is at war within us. When you go to the doctor for the first time, you fill out a medical history chart. You fill out any past illnesses or allergies. You tick off any reasons for a hospital stay or for any ongoing health concerns. You tick off any medical issues that may be going on in your family. You know, if we were to walk into the, the registration room of heaven and sit down with this list, not that there is a registration room of heaven, but if there was and, and we were to go in and sit down with this list, not one of us would hand in a sheet that was completely clean of marks. Sure, we may be able to avoid some of the bigger illnesses on the sheet, but then you start looking at some of the little things. You can't say you never smoked before because you tried it that one time in college, right? So you tick off the box. You can't say you're completely healthy because you deal with seasonal allergies, so you tick off the box. When I was little, I had a, a series of seizures over a matter of a couple days, and I was hospitalized for two weeks while I tried to figure out why that happened. I spend the next year going each month to a clinic to have my blood tested. Since then, I've never had a seizure. But now, every time I fill out a medical history chart, 
I see that, that section that asks if you've ever had a seizure. I, I want so badly to say I'm clean and healthy, but if I'm honest with myself and my doctors, I have to admit that I had that epileptic, epileptic episode when I was little. No matter who you are, if you're honest with yourself, not one of us would be able to, tick, to, to keep the tick marks off our spiritual history sheet. This is why we read Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. There he says these words. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. The problem in the story of this world isn't just that we live in a sinful world. The problem is that the sin that's in this world lives in me and in you. We're part of the problem. And though we don't deserve his forgiveness, grace tells us that we are forgiven by God for those who are in Christ Jesus. The undeserved favor of God tells us that this sin is washed clean away for those who are in Christ. Later on in the same chapter of Romans, Paul says these words in verses 23 and 24. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. On our best days, we still fall short of deserving God's forgiveness. And yet because of his unmerited and undeserved grace and favor, we're forgiven. The gift of God's grace offers us a clean spiritual history chart with no marks on it. When, um, when Tara and I were still at the seminary, we only had one car, and it worked pretty well for us. She would go into work on the train, she, so she would take the train into Boston. And, um, and for me, then I'd get to use the car around town, whether it's for going to uh, the, the church for a uh, ministry opportunity or, or for going to class. This was... Uh, this actually worked really good for us until the time came when, when Tara's offices were moved from downtown Boston to a city on the outskirts of, uh, a little town on the outskirts of the city where there was no train. And so all of a sudden, she didn't have the train to get her in and out of Boston. We were down to one car trying to figure out how would I commute to the church and how would she get down to her office. It was a little bit of a scary time for us because we didn't know how we were going to make it happen because we couldn't pay for another vehicle. Being in seminary, we really couldn't afford a car. In this circumstance, if you were to understand deserving to purchase a vehicle based on whether or not we could pay for it, we didn't deserve another car. But we were given the gift of a free minivan. We were given an enormous gift that we could never afford to pay for, and though it had well over 200,000 miles on it, we were blessed to receive it. This is grace. We couldn't afford it and did not deserve it. The salvation that God offers us by his grace is not deserved, and the salvation that God offers us then can't be earned. It's amazing to think that there's nothing I can do to pay for my own righteousness. Back in this morning's passage of Ephesians chapter 2, we read these words again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Our salvation is not our doing. It's not a result of our own works. Jumping back for a minute to the story of Tara and I being given the minivan while we were in seminary, if, if we had been asked to pay any money at all for the van, there really was no way we could have paid. I was working three jobs. She had one full-time job. I was in classes full-time. There was really no time for us to pick up any more jobs. 
Our budget was very small, and so any money coming in was already earmarked for our day-to-day needs. We didn't deserve the van because we didn't have the money to pay for it, and yet we had no way of earning the money to pay for that van. But yet we were gifted the van completely free. This is how it is with our salvation. The income of our good works is not enough to cover the cost of our righteousness. In accounting terms, no matter how many good works income we have going on, our spiritual bank account is always in the red without Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. I believe this is one of those issues that we nod our head to an agreement on Sunday morning, but we have a hard time believing and living out come Monday morning. We nod our heads to the idea that we can't earn our salvation through good works, and yet we live as if we believe we need to earn our salvation. The problem in living like this is that we live as if we can live this life without Jesus. We can be good enough. We can be successful enough. We can know what we really need and provide those needs pretty well. We're all self-sufficient. We lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves we're good at business or engineering or raising our children. <laughs> raising children will teach you how, uh, how much you need Jesus. When we had Alex, Tar and I felt like the greatest parents in our apartment building. I mean, he went to bed like that. Like, I just had to pick him up and turn him sideways. He was asleep. He ate like it was his business. He, he, he was happy as child. I remember our neighbors, I mean, they didn't have the same experience we, we did with their first child. And so, you know, they would oftentimes say, how did you do it? Well, Tar and I were just like, well, you know, you know, we're, you know, didn't really have an answer for them. And we realized why we didn't have an answer for them when we had Max. I love both my boys with all of my heart. Max, is, he, he's a sweetheart. But I realized that Alex was an easy baby because that's who God made him to be. Not at all because of my excellent prowess as a father. <laughs> Max taught me my utter need for, for Jesus in my role as a parent. Without Jesus being first and foremost in my heart, raising a child is impossible. Without recognizing that, that Jesus is my strength and, and that, that he is the one in and working in and through me, Raising a child is, is absolutely impossible. It's not done in my own strength or abilities. Max showed me that. Tim Keller once said that the number one lie that Satan tells us is that we can prove ourselves. He says that Satan tells us that we can prove to God and to others why we're worthy of his love and his forgiveness. And as many of us don't want to admit it, I think we believe this lie. The problem with believing this lie is that it develops the habit of our heart that does not involve Jesus. We rest on our good works as if we don't need Jesus. So let's, let's listen to these words then of Paul in Romans chapter 4. He says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If salvation was something that you could earn, then it would be a reward for your good works. Just like a worker gets paid every two weeks for the work they do, salvation would be a paycheck for our efforts. But what does Scripture say? What does God say to us in his word? What does God reveal to us about himself? It says, here in, in uh, back to the, the passage in Romans here, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Through faith, Abraham was saved, not through his works. We need to stop living the lie that we tell ourselves when we look at our neighbor and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. I'm good enough. We need to stop living the lie that says God could never love me or accept me or forgive me because of how little good I actually do. Just as I praise God that the successful parenting of my boys is not ultimately dependent upon myself, on how good I am, I praise God that my salvation is not based upon how good I am or, or how many good works I can do. God offers us salvation in Jesus because he loves us and not because of what he sees us doing or not doing. So just to recap for us, we don't deserve the salvation that God offers us in Christ Jesus. And we can't earn our salvation through good works. So how exactly are we saved by God's grace? Well, if we can't earn our salvation, then we can only accept it. As Paul pointed out to us in Romans 4 just a little while ago, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that what God had promised him was true. In the very next verse of Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we read these words. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In accepting the gift from God in Jesus Christ, we're counted as righteous. When, when I was offered the minivan back in the seminary, all I had to do was accept it. By accepting it, I believed that it was mine because the gift giver said it was mine. In accepting the gift that God offers us in Jesus Christ, we're believing that salvation is ours because the gift giver says it's ours. This is faith, and this is what makes us right before God. This is good news, but it's the very news that's so difficult for us to accept. God's gracious gift of our salvation is so difficult to accept because we have a hard time accepting ourselves. The eyes and ears of our hearts tell us we're not smart enough, we're not powerful enough, we're not good-looking enough, we're not kind enough. The eyes and ears of our hearts tell us we don't make enough money or contribute enough good to society. We can't accept ourselves, and so we don't understand the language of our hearts that says God accepts us. In John 3.16, we're willing to accept that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that Whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But we have a difficult time inserting our own personal name into that passage, that same verse of John 3.16. We have a difficult time saying that God so loved Dan that he sent his one and only son. That if Dan should believe in him, he would not perish but have eternal life. That's truth, yet for whatever reason, we have a hard time accepting that. The gracious gift of salvation is for the world, but it's also a personal gift for you and for me. We have to stop listening to the language of this this world that tells us we're loved and valued based on our own merits. Believe the language of God himself that says we're accepted, loved, and forgiven because he says we are in Christ Jesus. A preacher named D.L. Moody tells a story of a time when he had just gotten done teaching and he comes down from the pulpit and an elderly gentleman from the congregation comes up to him. The man told Moody that he had spent 42 years learning three things and wanted to share those three things with Moody. Well, D.L. Moody's thinking, well, this is great. I mean, I, in a matter of a few minutes, I can learn what's taken this man 42 years. 
So, so he says, yeah, sure, go ahead. I, I'd love to hear what you have to say. The man said, the first thing I learned was that I could do nothing toward my own salvation. The second thing the man learned through these 42 years of life was that God did not require him to do anything. And the third thing he learned was that Jesus Christ had done it all, that salvation was finished, and that all he had to do was take it. May we all learn this lesson today. Let's give up struggling and striving and accept that gift which is ours in Christ Jesus, our salvation. Accept it. You just can't earn your salvation. But you know what? Let's not talk about salvation as if it were just a doctrine or belief of the church distant from our day-to-day living. Let me, let me give you three examples of, of God's gracious forgiveness and his gift of salvation. They're all very real. If we were to look at the life of Paul, we would see a very real example of God's gracious forgiveness and salvation. The Apostle Paul was someone who experienced the grace of God very personally while on the road to Damascus. He was born Saul in the city of Tarsus. He was born a Roman citizen but valued his Jewish heritage more than anything. He was known early on by his Jewish name Saul, most likely because he thought it gave him some greater significance. He prided himself in his training as a student, sitting at the feet of and learning from Gamaliel, a very popular and well-known rabbi of Paul's day. Paul was a student that excelled beyond his fellow students. He knew how smart he was. His passion for the law and the religious teaching of his day would place him in a category of an extremist. He was a man who came to rest on his own strength, knowledge, and accomplishments. But self-sufficiency drove him to a zeal for the law, a zeal that resulted in the persecution of many and the death of many followers of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read these words of Paul. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's passion for the law led him to violence in the face of followers of Jesus who would challenge the law as he understood it. In Acts chapter 7, we're told that Paul held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen for his faith, one of the first followers of Jesus who we read about being martyred in the book of Acts. But rounding up Christians in Jerusalem for persecution, it didn't satisfy Paul's bloodthirst. In fact, he went to the leaders of, of, of the church in Jerusalem and said, give me a letter, let me go to Damascus, and I'll round up more Christians than you can even imagine. I'll bring them back here to Jerusalem in chains where we can hold their feet to the fire. Paul was a wicked man, tearing apart families and loved ones because of his zeal for the law. But thank God that this is not the end of the story. While Paul was on his way to Damascus, God delivered to Paul this gracious gift of salvation. A gracious gift of salvation from all of his past, his present, and his future. Paul himself would point back to that pivotal moment in his life when he reminds Timothy, one of, one of his uh, mentorees, uh, about this salvation. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. There he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul saw himself as one of the greatest sinners. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was undeserving of God's forgiveness. Paul found that the things he depended on in this world, his family's Jewish heritage, his knowledge of the law, his Roman citizenship, his role as a Pharisee, none of it would earn him the forgiveness and salvation his heart hungered for. As Paul could do, all Paul could do was accept this gift of faith and salvation on the road to Damascus. This gracious gift of salvation. Well, you know what? Paul's story happened a long time ago. So how about a story a little bit closer to ours in time? The, the, the second of the three stories I want to share with you this morning is the story of a man who, whose uh, salvation came to him in a time when he was intertwined in the scandal of, of more of our time, actually. He was a, a, a man who was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1931. His name is Chuck Colson, and, and his salvation, the gracious a gift of salvation, was offered to him at a time when he was intertwined in, in the scandal of, of Watergate, a, a, a major scandal in, our, in the history of our, our country uh, during the presidency of Richard Nixon. Chuck Colson was a very intelligent man receiving his B.A. From, with honors from Brown University and a law degree from George Washington University Law School. He served in the Marine Corps, tre- achieving the rank of captain. He was an assistant to the assistant secretary of the Navy before getting into political campaigns and, and starting his own law firm. He's most famously or maybe infamously known for his time as a special counsel to Richard Nixon. He was known as the hatchet man for President Nixon, pulling off the things that the president didn't want to know how they were accomplished. Colson has described himself as valuable to the president because he was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. He played a role in the New York City hard hat riot of 1970 in which he instigated union leaders to gather uh, 200 uh, union workers to go up against 1,000 protesters of, of the Vietnam War. Over those two hours, 70 people were injured, including 40, or four policemen. Sorry. Colson was known as the evil genius in an evil administration, and he had a reputation that said he would walk over his grandmother if he deemed it necessary to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. He committed acts of evil that would, that would eventually lead him to serve time in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Colson was ruthless. And yet God extended that personal gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In an account of his life on his website, you can read these words. By God's grace, the former White House hatchet man was transformed into a humble servant, seeking to proclaim God's love and forgiveness to those most in need of mercy. He founded a ministry that has now expanded to over 100 countries and continues to to introduce the good news of Jesus to prisoners and their families. If Mr. Coulson can repent of his sins, the Boston Globe wrote, there just has to be hope for everybody. This is most certainly true. Chuck knew that he was trapped in his sin and that he could not in his own power free himself from it. 
He knew that God's forgiveness was not something earned by right living, but was the gift of God, a free gift procured through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Through that act, salvation is offered, and we're able to enter into a relationship with the God who created us all and called us all to be his own. You see, both Paul and Chuck Colson knew that there wasn't anything they could do to earn the gift of salvation that God offers them in Jesus. No amount of uh, trips to the church or synagogue would save them. No amount of time spent in prison would redeem their past and make them clean again. But maybe we're still looking at examples too far back in history. How about one more example of, of a recipient of God's grace? The third and final story of God's redeeming grace is my own. As I look back on my life, I considered myself to be riddled with tick marks on the medical history sheet of my soul. As a young man, I lived a lie before God and my family. As I grew, I became keenly aware of my weaknesses and my lack of success in comparison to my peers. In reflection, I'm all too aware of my own sin and shame. And then there are the words which bring me such comfort in the Bible. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, has extended his gift of grace by faith to me. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, verses 10 10 through 12, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgre- our transgressions from us. Because of his steadfast love, I am valuable. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, I'm strong when I am in him. Because of what Jesus did for me, God has removed the tick marks on the medical history chart of my soul. Because of God's great grace, I don't need to listen to the number one lie of Satan which says I have to prove myself. Jesus has already done that work for me. This week, I want to encourage you to record these words of the psalmist from Psalm 103 on a three-by-five card. Carry that card with you. Carry that card with you to read throughout your day and to remind you how God views you. The world will attack you this week with ways that wants to shape how the world sees you. But the greatest weapon we have against the lies of this world is God's truth. Read the three-by-five card throughout your day to remind yourself that you don't deserve your salvation, nor can you earn it. Only receive it. Accept it. You just can't earn your salvation. Let's pray together. Father God, grace is is such a foreign word for us. And and I don't mean just a foreign word for our minds to understand, but Lord, it's a foreign word for our hearts to take hold of. Father, I pray for our hearts today that we would be encouraged, not just with a a knowledge of, of understanding your grace a little bit more, but Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged to see ourselves the way you see us that in Jesus Christ we are accepted. In Jesus Christ we are forgiven. In Jesus Christ we are loved. Lord, that's a gift that you give us. Nothing we can do to earn it. And Lord, I, I pray that our hearts would hold to that truth. It would be, it would be the very 
reality that we live in this week and in the coming weeks. Father, I pray that our hearts would grow in gratitude for that grace. But I pray first and foremost for the security and the confidence that we serve a God who would send his only son to draw us near to you because you know that there's nothing we can say or do or even imagine that would allow us to come before you. Father God, transform our hearts to believe this truth. As we walk in the confidence to know the gift you've given us is ours because you say it's ours. We thank you for that truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.